Well, good morning, Grace Point. First, I just want to say that I am grateful to be with you this morning. Pastor Josh and I both serve on the board of the WITH Collective, and I have absolutely loved getting to know him and hearing his heart these last several months. Even from afar, I know Grace Point as a gracious place, and I deeply appreciate your work and witness in the world. I also want to name that your leadership recently decided to financially support the community I pastor, Resurrection City, D.C., through a generous one-time donation. If you've ever been around church starts like Resurrection City, you know that we're scrappy and we're fun in kind of an unnerving way. I appreciate deeply Grace Point responding to our scrappiness. I appreciate y'all having a heart for something other than church as usual. So I really could not be more thrilled to be with you virtually this morning. I actually want to start with a confession. Somewhere in the recesses of my mind, I've begun to associate the first several months of the year with death. Like everybody else, I'm aware that the beginning of the year begins a march towards spring. And like many other Christians, I realize that the Christian season of Lent frames out this march toward new life with a timely focus on mortality and death and lament. Yet I can't help but think it's a little odd these days that I think of spring time as killing time. I'm realizing that it was in these first months of the year that Malcolm X was assassinated. On Easter Sunday this year, we'll also have to observe the 53rd anniversary of Reverend King's death. And then in the last few years, we added younger, less well-known folks to the list of those murdered. And you know their names. Trayvon Martin and Ahmaud Arbery and Brittany Taylor. Now, my point here is not to create an exhaustive list or to say that folks aren't killed unjustly in all parts of the year. They most definitely are. But I hold in my heart the contradiction Billie Holiday expressed so well in her song, Strange Fruit. Scent of magnolia, sweet and fresh, she sang, then the sudden smell of burning flesh. I sometimes wonder whether Jesus might have carried the cross he would later hang from down streets surrounded by blooming flowers. And, and this year, that contradiction is again painfully present as we experience the aftermath of the murders in Atlanta, the murders of eight people beloved by God in life as in death, six of them women of Asian descent. We have so many layers to confront when it comes to this violence perpetrated by white men. We can talk about ideas of purity that ground so much of toxic theology. We can talk about the language of respectability that is so often used to describe white violence. 
We can talk about patriarchy and the way in which women of Asian descent are fetishized. Yet all these layers of violence are offshoots of white supremacy and the myths we allow to blossom about who America is. Now, like many of us, I was glued to the news and to social media channels the morning after these murders. And there was this one post that really, really got me. I was on the feed of Erna Kim Hackett, who I encourage you to follow and especially follow if you are a woman of color. Here's what she wrote. The least surprising thing about this will be finding out that this guy called himself a Christian. White Christianity leads to death. Stop pretending you can make tiny tweaks and save it. And then of course, later that day, we did find out that he was Christian. White Christianity leads to death. Take that short phrase in. Try to engage it beyond your knee-jerk reaction. Much of the Christianity, if not most of the Christianity practiced in America has deep connections to white supremacist ways of being in the world. And there have always, always been people who witness to that truth. And here's how Frederick Douglass put it in his, the appendix of his 1848 biography. What I have said respecting and against religion I mean strictly to apply to the slave-holding religion of this land and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. Here, Douglas, he calls the white Christianity practiced on American soil slave-holding religion. And this is the kind of religion, he says, that leads to death, the kind of religion that provides the foundation for much of modern American Christianity. Now, let me be really clear. I am not saying that various denominations and Christian groups in different times and places have not tried to distance themselves from the Christianity of plantation and empire. They most definitely have. Nearly every major Christian denomination split in the 19th century in light of the Civil War. But what I am saying is that the white Christianity which leads to death is the water that nearly all of us swim in and are trying to, well, hopefully are trying to swim out of. It forms the center, not the margins of the Christ pursuit on American soil. I realize that here at Grace Point, you all have been, uh, have just wrapped up a series on progressive Christianity 
as I have experienced the series from afar, a comment from a young woman that I know has been resurfacing for me. We were at a small group gathering in probably the first six months of Resurrection City's life. At some point, the group ended up talking about the labels we use for our church. And we talked about words like evangelical and post-evangelical and post-fundamentalist. And we also talked about the word progressive, which our community has long used to describe itself. This young woman said in almost a throwaway manner that white churches call themselves progressive. Black churches call themselves liberationist. And even at the time, I was pretty astounded by this. I really honestly didn't fully understand what she meant. But my journey as a pastor of a community that is intentionally diverse, but which centers the voices of black folks and indigenous folks and people of color has taught me what she meant. I don't think she was saying that the kind of churches she was talking about always explicitly use these kinds of labels. I think she was saying that there is a way that different communities based on social location frame out the, projector, the trajectory of what it means to be something other than part of the slave holding religion of this country, the white Christianity that leads to death. For some black folks, not all black folks or all black churches, but for some, this alternative find its, finds its footing in notions of liberation. This liberationist Christianity can be traced back to the faith communities that enslaved black folks secretly created in the woods and in the swamps and in the ravines, away from the gaze of master and plantation. As Dr. Ebony Marshall Terman puts it, we took our gods, went into the woods, and found Jesus for ourselves. Endemic to this kind of Christianity was an honoring of ancestral ways of knowing, a partnership with nature, and a respect for inner authority that said, something about this religion you're trying to give me just, it's not quite right. Endemic to this kind of Christianity was a curiosity and a suspicion that led folks to find Jesus for themselves outside of the deathly forces of plantation and empire. Progressive Christianity asks critical questions about how we choose theology and ethics that are healthier and, and more faithful to the vision laid out in scripture for profound peace for all things. Liberationist Christianity asks questions about how we choose theology and ethics that allow us to survive, to make it to the end of this day and this week and this month without being killed, without surrendering to the diabolical that seeks to tear us apart as individuals and as communities. And it's also important to name that liberationist Christianity is inherently political. Let me be clear, it's not partisan, but it is political. 
It names that we are enmeshed in relationships of power, which is actually what defines what we call political. It responds to the reality of relationships of power by refusing to disentangle physical liberation and spiritual salvation. Sometimes I, I marvel at the intuitive genius of my ancestors who birthed this kind of Christianity on American soil. They couldn't have known that the Israelite community, that their thought, that they thought in holes, that they did not divide things up the way that Westerners do. They could not have known that the American idea of separation of church and of state that we impose on our readings of scriptures would have been foreign to the writers of the Gospels. They could not have known that it was the influence of Greek thought that influenced Christianity toward compartmentalizing the spiritual from the physical. But they did instinctively know that they needed to survive, that they needed to become free, and that the religion of Jesus had something to say about that. My point in saying all of that of this is that liberationist Christianity and progressive Christianity can be rich partners. Since over the last several weeks, uh, Grace Point has been exploring the progressive trajectory in scripture. I want to spend a few more minutes today grounding the liberationist perspective in scripture. You'll notice that there is a lot of overlap. Just remember that liberationist Christianity starts with a basic desire for survival. A good place for us to start is actually in the way in which Jesus opens his ministry in each of the four gospel accounts. And since Matthew and Mark are very similar in the way they open, the gospel writers seem to indicate that the liberating ministry of Jesus unfolds in really three ways. It unfolds as an alternative to empire. It names the good news as liberation for the marginalized. And it calls for the necessary dismantling of systems which contradict the alternative way. So first, Mark 1, 14 through 15, which is very similar again to the way Matthew records the opening of the ministry of Jesus. Here's what the writer of Mark says. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Now, I realize that many of us might have a visceral reaction to these lines because so often we have been, we have seen them plastered on signs of sidewalk preachers that are, that are spouting virulent hate. But just hear me out for a second. These lines are the words Jesus chooses to frame out the essential program of his ministry, the kingdom of God. See, the imagination of Israel was circumscribed by the ancestral memory of God interrupting their experience of slavery in Egypt. God intervened then through miracles to dislodge the plantation gods of Pharaoh 
and to bring physical liberation. The children of Israel had been brought into a new identity as a covenant people, people accountable fundamentally to a God of liberation. They were ushered into a time in which that accountability bound them to one another by covenant norms of social and economic justice. But then after a while, they wanted a king like everybody else had. They wanted a different framework of accountability. From that point on, the history of the Israelites becomes a history of subjugation. Sometimes internally, but also over and over again, externally. Empire after empire conquers them and oppresses them. So when Jesus speaks these words about changing direction in order to follow the way of the kingdom of God, he speaks to a people in the wake of generations of empire. He speaks to a people who desire for God to interrupt again and restore Israel as a covenant community accountable to God in a fundamental way. Jesus, Jesus comes and forcefully rejects the Roman myth of peace through victory, and he replaces it by insisting that there is an alternative way of peace through nonviolent justice that he himself will embody. This alternative way is framed by the spiritual and physical conditions that the people face. It takes into account the lives of the people within systems of power it proclaims that Caesar is not king, God is. And it says to us that we are not finally accountable to the deathly forces of empire and the world in which we inhabit. We are accountable to God and neighbor within a relationship of covenant. There is an alternative way and nothing less than our survival hangs on it. But the liberationist Christianity that I'm talking about doesn't only unfold as an alternative to empire. It names the good news as liberation for the oppressed and the marginalized. The writer of Luke records the opening of Jesus' ministry with a proclamation of Jesus as he teaches in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released and that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. The good news here is both spiritual and socioeconomic it applies to both the personal and the structural. It is fundamentally about liberation. Liberation is not somehow hiding at the corners of what Jesus is about in the world. It's at the very center. And what's more, Jesus proclaims that the original future intent of these words is present in him and with us today. This, this good news, this gospel, which in the Greek anchors the word evangelical, is fundamentally about good news to the poor. The Greek word here frames the poor as those 
who in Reverend William Barber's words, have been made poor by unjust systems. In other words, the marginalized. The good news is about release, which is actually used twice and not once in the original language of these verses. Release, release for captives, release for the oppressed. It's a real world liberation. But make no mistake, when Luke uses this term, it's also holistic. One scholar says this about this passage. Release is understood, especially in terms of forgiveness of sins, which is integral to restore relationship with the Lord. Human wholeness as individuals are released from diabolic power and released from debts. That is relationships characterized by debt and obligation to one's betters. When Jesus gives this inaugural sermon about what he's all about in the world, he implicitly frames the kingdom of God in terms of jubilee. That's what this whole thing is about. In fact, we could say that another name for the kingdom of God is jubilee. And Randy Woodley, who's a Native American Christian theologian that I highly recommend, explains jubilee and its connection to Sabbath like this. The Sabbath concept in Israelite tradition was not just a seventh day and a seventh year of rest. It also came on every seventh set of seven years, and that year was called Jubilee. After 49 years, uh, which is seven Sabbath years, came Jubilee, the culmination of and fulfillment of all God's Sabbath intentions. On every 50th year, Numerous actions were called for, but the following three principles are the main concern. And this is how he lists them out. All debts were canceled, so there would be no liabilities. All prisoners were set free. All land was redistributed by giving it back to those who originally possessed it. So Jesus, he frames his ministry and his message in terms of liberation that is both, again, physical and spiritual. And then the final example I want to give regarding this root system of liberationist Christianity comes from John's picture of how Jesus inaugurates this message through an embodied act. The example I'm drawing from is often called the cleansing of the temple. Unlike the other gospel writers, the writer John places the story right at the beginning of his narrative about Jesus. And basically, here's how the story goes. As a Jewish, you know, a good Jewish male, Jesus travels to Jerusalem along with about 100,000 other pilgrims for a major religious festival. But when he steps into the temple, he is so disturbed by what he sees that he ends up driving out those selling and changing money with the whip that he just makes right there on the spot. Can you picture that? Anyway, Jesus scatters the money of the money changers in his anger and he overturns tables. He's totally unseemly in his reaction to what's happening in the temple. But the anger of Jesus here is not actually what is scandalous about the story. The scandal is much more about the details. See, the temple complex was the spiritual and national and psychic heart of the Jewish nation. 
the cattle, sheep, and doves were the unblemished animals necessary to offer sacrifices in the temple. Those who traveled to Jerusalem would not have been able to bring such animals along on the journey, so they, they got it, they had to buy them at the temple. The money changers were also necessary because the travelers would have had all kinds of international currency. They needed to exchange their money for the currency that was used in the temple, currency which did not bear the image of the emperor and which could be used to buy the animals they needed to sacrifice. When Jesus drives the animal sellers and money changers out, he is undercutting what is necessary to the system. The marketplace that he disrupts for an entire day is critical for the temple function. The versions of this story now in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke assume that what Jesus was criticizing were abuses in the system, distortions of the system that could be corrected by reforms. In John's version, the system itself is the problem and that is what has to be upended. Jesus announces that he is the new temple, the place where heaven and earth now meet. In other words, the temple is not king, God is. So not only is liberationist Christianity an unapologetically political expression of Christianity that centers the alternative way of Jesus in a context of empire, not only is it grounded in a jubilee message of liberation, but it also calls for the embodied dismantling of systems which contradict the alternative way and demand our allegiance. This is the reason that so many liberationist churches throughout history have centered the techniques of real world organizing in the work. They acknowledge that the master's house, to borrow the phrase of Audrey Lord, must be dismantled with new tools based in the alternative way of peace through nonviolent injustice, based in the way of Jesus or as Erna Kim Hackett named, white Christianity leads to death. Stop pretending you can make tiny tweaks and save it. I, I wanna end by observing one final curious detail about this story. When the disciples of Jesus observe him turning over tables in the temple, they associate his action with a phrase from the Hebrew scriptures zeal for your house will consume me zeal for your house will consume me the passion that jesus expressed would lead to him being consumed by torturous death when i think about so many of the unjust murders that we are forced to commemorate every spring when I think about the murders of those precious people that cannot be replaced this week in Atlanta, I wonder if one of our principal fears about speaking up, about embodying justice, might be, of, be that we are afraid of being consumed. Maybe not by death, but maybe by being treated just like them. If white folks act in solidarity with black folks, if black folks act in solidarity with Asian folks, 
if all who identify as men act in solidarity with all who identify as women, if queer folks act in solidarity with those who have disabilities, there will be consequences. We will lose privileges, whatever our privilege might be. And I think that that is the real challenge for folks who identify as progressive, to act in solidarity with those who are doing liberationist theology to survive, to act in solidarity with them, knowing that genuine solidarity will result in being consumed, to trust and to act in solidarity regardless, knowing that being consumed always leads to new life, to resurrection, beyond our wildest imaginings. Amen. <laughs>